The Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. The Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Volume 1. Translated by John Addington Simmons. 32. I shall be obliged to digress a little from the history of my art, unless I were to omit some annoying incidents which have happened in the course of my troubled career. One of these, which I am about to describe, brought me into the greatest risk of my life. I have already told the story of the artist's club, and of the farcical adventures which happened owing to the woman whom I mentioned, Pantasilea, the one who felt for me that false and fulsome love. She was furiously enraged because of the pleasant trick by which I brought Diego to our banquet, and she swore to be revenged on me. How she did so is mixed up with the history of a young man called Luigi Pulci, who had recently come to Rome. He was the son of one of the Pulcis, who had been beheaded for incest with his daughter, and the youth possessed extraordinary gifts for poetry together with sound Latin scholarship. He wrote well, was graceful in manners, and of surprising personal beauty. He had just left the surface of some bishop, whose name I do not remember, and was thoroughly tainted with a very foul disease. While he was yet a lad and living in Florence, they used in certain places of the city to meet together during the nights of summer on the public streets, and he, ranking among the best of the improvisatori, sang there. His recitations were so admirable that the divine Michael Agnolo Brunarotti, that prince of sculptors and of painters, went wherever he heard that he would be, with the greatest eagerness and delight to listen to him. There was a man called Piloto, a goldsmith, very able in his art, who together with myself joined Buonarotti upon these occasions. Thus acquaintance sprang up between me and Luigi Pulci, and after the lapse of many years he came in the miserable plight which I have mentioned to make himself known to me again in Rome, beseeching me for God's sake to help him. Moved to compassion by his great talents, by the love of my fatherland, and by my own natural tenderness of heart, I took him into my house, and had him medically treated in such wise that, being but a youth, he soon regained his health. While he was still pursuing his cure, he never omitted his studies, and I provided him with books according to the means at my disposal. The result was that Luigi, recognising the great benefits he had received from me, oftentimes with words and tears returned me thanks protesting that if God should ever put good fortune in his way, he would recompense me for his kindness. To this I replied that I had not done for him as much as I desired, but only what I could, and that it was the duty of human beings to be mutually serviceable. Only I suggested that he repay the service I had rendered him by doing likewise to someone who might have the same need of him as he had of me. The young man in question began to frequent the court of Rome, where he soon found a situation, and enrolled himself in the suite of a bishop, a man of eighty years, who bore the title of Gurgensis. This bishop had a nephew called Messer Giovanni. He was a nobleman of Venice, and the said Messer Giovanni made a show of marvellous attachment to Luigi Pulci's talents, and under the pretense of these talents he brought him as familiar to himself as his own flesh-blood. Luigi, having talked of me and of his great obligations to me with Messer Giovanni, the latter expressed a wish to make my acquaintance. 
Thus when it came to pass, that when I had upon a certain evening invited that woman Pantasilea to supper, and had assembled a company of men of parts, who were my friends, just at that moment of our sitting down to table, Messer Giovanni and Luigi Pulci arrived, and after some complimentary speeches they both remained to sup with us. The shameless strumpet, casting her eyes upon the young man's beauty, began at once to lay her nets for him, perceiving which, when the supper had come to an agreeable end, I took Luigi aside and conjured him, by the benefits he said he owed me, to have nothing whatever to do with her. To this he answered, Good heavens, Benvenuto, do you then take me for a madman? I rejoined, Not for a madman, but for a young fellow. And I swore to him, By God, I do not give that woman the least thought, but for your sake I should be sorry if through her you came to break your neck. Upon these words, he vowed and prayed to God that, if ever he but spoke with her, he might upon the moment break his neck. I think the poor lad swore this oath to God with all his heart, for he did break his neck, as I shall presently relate. Messer Giovanni showed signs too evident of loving him in a dishonourable way, for we began to notice that Luigi had new suits of silk and velvet every morning, and it was known that he abandoned himself altogether to bad courses. He neglected his fine talents, and pretended not to see or recognise me, because I had once rebuked him, and told him he was giving his soul to foul vices, which would make him break his neck, as he had vowed. 33. Now, Messer Giovanni brought his favourite a very fine black horse, for which he paid a hundred and fifty crowns. The beast was admirably trained to hand, so that Luigi could go daily to Caracoli around the lodgings of that prostitute Pantasilea. Though I took notice of this, I paid it no attention, only remarking that all things acted as their nature prompted, and meanwhile I gave my whole mind to my studies. It came to pass one Sunday evening that we were invited to sup together with the Sienese sculptor Michael Agnolo, and the time of the year was summer. Bacciacca, of whom I have already spoken, was present at the party, and he had brought with him his old flame Pantasilea. When we were at table, she sat between me and Bacciata, but in the very middle of the banquet, she rose and excused herself upon the pretense of a natural need, saying she would speedily return. We meanwhile continued talking, very agreeably, and supping, but she remained an unaccountably long time absent. It chanced that, keeping my ears open, I thought I heard a sort of subdued tittering in the street below. I had a knife in hand which I was using for my service at the table. The window was so close to where I sat that, by merely rising, I could see Luigi in the street, together with Pantasilea, and I heard Luigi saying, Oh, if that devil Benvenuto only saw us, shouldn't we catch it? And he answered, Have no fear, only listen to the noise they're making. We're the last thing they're thinking of. At these words, having made them both well out, I leapt from the window and took Luigi by the cape and certainly I should then have killed him with the knife I had, but that he was riding a white horse, to which he clapped spurs, leaving his cape in my grasp in order to preserve his life. Pantasilea took to her heels in the direction of a neighbouring church. The company at supper rose immediately and came down, entreating me in a body to refrain from putting myself and them to inconvenience for a strumpet. I told them that I should not have let myself be moved on her account, but that I was bent on punishing the infamous young man, who showed how little he regarded me, 
Accordingly, I would not yield to the remonstrances of those ingenious and worthy men, but took my sword, and went alone toward Preti, the house where we were supping, I should say, stood close to the Castello gate, which led to Preti. Walking thus upon the road to Preti, I had not gone far before the sun sank, and I re-entered Rome itself at a slow pace. Night had fallen, the darkness had come on, but the gates of Rome were not yet shut. Towards two hours after sunset, I walked along Pantalazilea's lodging, with the intention, if Luigi Pulci were there, of doing something to the discontent of both. When I heard and saw that no one but a poor servant-girl called Canido was in the house, I went to put away my cloak and the scabbard of my sword, and then returned to the house, which stood behind the banshee on the river Tiber. Just opposite stretched a garden belonging to an innkeeper called Romolo. It was enclosed by a thick hedge of thorns, in which I hid myself, standing upright, and waiting till the woman came back with Luigi. After keeping watch a while there, my friend Baciaca crept up to me, whether led by his own suspicions or by the advice of others I cannot say. In a low voice he called out to me, Gossip, for so we used to name ourselves for fun, and then he prayed me for God's love, using the words which follow, with tears in the tone of his voice. Dear Gossip, I entreat you not to injure that poor girl. She at least has erred no wise in this matter. No, not at all. When I heard what he was saying, I replied, If you don't take yourself off now, at this first word I utter, I will bring my sword here down upon your head. Overwhelmed with fright, my poor Gossip was suddenly taken ill with the colic and withdrew to ease himself apart. Indeed, he could not but obey the call. There was such a glorious heaven of stars, which shed good light to see by. All of a sudden I was aware of the noise of many horses. They were coming toward me from one side and the other. It turned out to be Luigi and Pantasilea, attended by a certain Messer Benvegnato of Perugia, who was Chamberlain to Pope Clement, and followed by four doughty captains of Perugia, with some other valiant soldiers in the flower of youth. Altogether reckoned there were more than twelve swords. When I understood the matter, and saw not how to fly, I did my best to crouch into the hedge. But the thorns pricked and hurt me, goading me to madness like a bull, and I half resolved to take a leap and hazard my escape. Just then Luigi, with his arm round Pantasilea's neck, was heard crying, I must kiss you once again, if only to insult that traitor Benvenuto. At that moment, annoyed as I was by the prickles, and irritated by the young man's words, I sprang forth, lifted my sword on high, and shouted at the top of my voice, "'You are all dead folk!' My blow descended on the shoulder of Luigi, but the satyrs who doted on him had steeled his person round with coats of mail and such like villainous defences. Still the stroke fell with crushing force. Swerving aside, the sword hit Pantasilea full in nose and mouth. Both she and Luigi grovelled on the ground, while Baciaca, with his breeches down to heels, screamed out and ran away. Then I turned upon the others boldly with my sword, and those valiant fellows, hearing a sudden commotion in the tavern, thought there was an army coming of a hundred men, and though they drew their swords with spirit, yet two horses which had taken fright in the tumult cast them into such disorder that a couple of the best riders were thrown, and the remainder took to flight. I, seeing that the affair was turning out well for me, ran as quickly as I could, and came off with honour from the engagement, not wishing to tempt fortune more than was my duty. During the hurly-burly, some of the soldiers and captains wounded themselves with their own arms, 
and Messer Benvegnato, the Pope's chamberlain, was kicked and trampled by his mule. One of the servants also, who had drawn his sword, fell down together with his master, and wounded him badly in the hand. Maddened by the pain, he swore louder than all the rest in his Perugian jargon, crying out, By the body of God, I will take care that Benvegnato teaches Benvenuto how to live. He afterwards commissioned one of the captains who were with him, braver perhaps than the others, but with less aplomb as being but a youth, to seek me out. The fellow came to visit me in the place of by retirement. That was the palace of a great Neapolitan nobleman, who had become acquainted with me in my art, and besides taken a fancy to me because of my physical and mental aptitude for fighting, to which my lord himself was personally well inclined. So then, finding myself made much of, and being precisely in my element, I gave such answer to the captain as I think must have made him earnestly repent of having come to look me up. After a few days, when the wounds of Luigi and the strumpet and the rest were healing, the great Neapolitan nobleman received overtures from Messer Benvegnato, for the prelate's anger had cooled, and had proposed to ratify a peace between me and Luigi and the soldiers, who had personally no quarrel with me, and only wished to make my acquaintance. Accordingly, my friend and nobleman replied that he would bring me where they chose to appoint, and that he was very willing to effect a reconciliation. He stipulated that no words should be banded about on either side, seeing that would be little to their credit. It was enough to go through the form of drinking together and exchanging kisses. He, for his part, undertook to do the talking, and promised to settle the matter to their honour. This arrangement was carried out. On Thursday evening my protector took me to the house of Messer Benvegnato, where all the soldiers who had been present at that discomfiture were assembled, and already seated at table. My nobleman was attended by thirty brave fellows, all well armed a circumstance which Messer Benvegnato had not anticipated. When we came into the hall, he walking first, I following, he speak to this effect. God save you, gentlemen. We have come to see you, I and Benvenuto, whom I love like my own brother, and we are ready to do whatever you propose. Messer Benvegnato, seeing the hall filled with such a crowd of men, called out, It is only peace, and nothing else we ask of you. Accordingly, he promised that the governor of Rome, with his catchpoles, should give me no trouble. Then we made peace, and I returned to my shop, where I could not stay an hour without that Neapolitan nobleman either coming to see me or sending for me. Meanwhile, Luigi Pulci, having recovered from his wound, rode every day upon the black horse which was so well trained to heel and bridle. One day, among others, after it had rained a little, and he was making his horse curvet just before Pantasilea's door, he slipped and fell with the horse upon him. His right leg was broken short off in the thigh, and after a few days he died there in Pantasilea's lodgings, discharging thus the vow he registered so heartily to heaven. Even so it may be seen that God keeps account of the good and the bad, and gives to each one what he merits. Chapter 34 The whole world was now in warfare. Pope Clement had sent to get some troops from Giovanni de' Medici, and when they came, they made such disturbances in Rome, that it was ill living in open shops. On this account I retired to a good snug house behind the Biacci, where I worked for all the friends I had acquired. Since I produced few things of much importance at that period, I need not waste time in talking about them. I took much pleasure in music and amusements of the kind. On the death of Giovanni de' Medici in Lombardy, 
the Pope, at the advice of Messer Jacopi Salviati, dismissed the five bands he had engaged, and when the constable of Bourbon knew that there were no troops in Rome, he pushed his army with the utmost energy up to the city. The whole of Rome upon this flew to arms. I happened to be intimate with Alessandro, the son of Piero del Beni, who at that time, when the Colonesi entered Rome, had requested me to guard his palace. On this more serious occasion, therefore, he prayed me to enlist fifty comrades for the protection of the said house, appointing me as their captain, as I had been when the Colonesi came. So I collected fifty young men of the highest courage, and we took up our quarters in his palace, with good pay and excellent appointments. Bourbon's army had now arrived before the walls of Rome, and Alessandro begged me to go with him to reconnoitre. So we went with one of the stoutest fellows in our company, and on the way a youth called Cicino della Casa joined himself to us. On reaching the walls by the Campo Santo, we could see that famous army, which was making every effort to enter the town. Upon the ramparts where we took our station, several young men were lying killed by the besiegers. The battle raged there desperately, and there was the densest fog imaginable. I turned to Alessandro and said, Let us go home as soon as we can, for there is nothing to be done here. You see the enemies are mounting and our men are in flight. Alessandro, in a panic, cried, Would God that we had never come here, and turned in maddest haste to fly. I took him up somewhat sharply with these words. Since you have brought me here, I must perform some action worthy of a man, and directing my arquebus where I saw the thickest and most serried troop of fighting men, I aimed exactly at one whom I remarked to be higher than the rest. The fog prevented me from being certain whether he was on horseback or on foot. Then I turned to Alessandro and Cecchino, and bade them discharge their arquebuses, showing them how to avoid being hit by the besiegers. When we had fired two rounds apiece, I crept cautiously up to the wall, and observing among the enemy a most extraordinary confusion, I discovered afterwards that one of our shots had killed the constable of Bourbon, and from what I subsequently learned he was the man whom I had first noticed above the heads of the rest. Quitting our position on the ramparts, we crossed the Campo Santo, and entered the city by St. Peter's. Then coming out exactly at the church of Santo Agnolo, we got with the greatest difficulty to the great gate of the castle, for the generals Renzo de Chieri and Orazio Baglioni were wounding and slaughtering everybody who abandoned the defense of the walls. By the time we had reached the great gate, part of the foemen had already entered Rome, and we had them in our rear. The castellan had ordered the portcullis to be lowered, in order to do which they cleared a little space, and this enabled us four to get inside. On the instant that I entered, the captain, Polone de' Medici, claimed me as being of the papal household, and forced me to abandon Alessandro, which I had to do much against my will. I ascended to the keep, and at the same instant Pope Clement came in through the corridors into the castle. He had refused to leave the palace of St. Peter earlier, being unable to believe that his enemies would effect their entrance into Rome. Having got into the castle in this way, I attached myself to certain pieces of artillery, which were under the command of a bombardier called Giuliano Fiorentino. Leaning there against the battlements, the unhappy man could see his poor house being sacked, and his wife and children outraged. Fearing to strike his own folk, he dared not discharge the cannon, and flinging the burning fuse upon the ground, he wept as though his heart would break, and tore his cheeks with both hands. Some of the other bombardiers were behaving in like manner, seeing which I took one of the matches and got the assistance of a few men who were not overcome by their emotions. I aimed some swivels and falconets at points where I saw it would be useful, and killed with them a good number of the enemy. Had it not been for this, the troops who poured into Rome that morning, and were marching straight upon the castle, 
might possibly have entered it with ease, because the artillery was doing them no damage. I went on firing under the eyes of several cardinals and lords, who kept blessing me and giving me the heartiest encouragement. In my enthusiasm I strove to achieve the impossible. Let it suffice that it was I who saved the castle that morning, and brought the other bombardiers back to their duty. I worked the whole of that day, and when the evening came, while the army was marching into Rome through the Testaveri, Pope Clement appointed a great Roman nobleman named Antonio Santa Croce to be captain of all the gunners. The first thing that this man did was to come to me, and having greeted me with the utmost kindness, he stationed me with five fine pieces of artillery on the highest point of the castle, to which the name of the angel specially belongs. This circular eminence goes round the castle, and surveys both the Prati and the town of Rome. The captain put under my orders enough men to help in managing my guns, and having seen me paid in advance, he gave me rations of bread and a little wine, and begged me to go forward as I had begun. I was perhaps more inclined by nature to the profession of arms than to the one I had adopted, and took such pleasure in its duties that I discharged them better than those of my own art. Night came, the enemy had entered Rome, and we who were in the castle, especially myself who have always taken pleasure in extraordinary sights, stayed gazing on the indescribable scene of tumult and conflagration in the streets below. People who were anywhere else but where we were could not have formed the least imagination of what it was. I will not, however, set myself to describe that tragedy, but will content myself with continuing the history of my own life and the circumstances which properly belong to it.